0: My first drink was from um, a naked lady who poured champagne in my mouth. So that was quite a sort of um, baptism of bubbles.
1: This is Food Trippin'. You're listening to me, journalist Anastasia Miari, on a road trip through America's deep south. Food Trippin' is a podcast that takes me out into the world by car, boat or train. I take a friend along the way and en route we discover the lesser known regions of our planet through food. In this series, my friend Iska Lupton and I hit the deep south of the USA for shrimp and grits in North Carolina to the drive-ins of Tennessee and Mississippi. We continue onwards to a gumbo of food influences in Louisiana and then on to Texas for some real Tex-Mex. The reason for this trip? This podcast is all about discovering places through food. Other than burgers and club sandwiches, I really have no idea what American food culture's all about. What better way to find out then, than going to the deep south? They did say that food in New Orleans would be good. It's our first night. We've walked into Bar Mary Lou and walked into a pair of tits. In this episode, we're letting our hair down in New Orleans, city of Mardi Gras, raucous street parties and the gastronomic capital of the South. We walk into a sort of boudoir-esque red room with red velvet curtains from floor to ceiling and a bookcase that runs the entire length of the room. And there's a bales night on where we have come to eat. And now we are eating and the food is maybe even better than the burlesque, which is hard to beat because it was amazing. Bar Mary Lou draws influence from a French boudoir. It's the first hint we spot of New Orleans French influence and that's before we even try the food. The entire place is plush with red and pink velvet. It all feels so sumptuous and rich, a huge contrast to the roadside diners we're becoming so used to here in the South.
0: Um, yeah it's really cool there's leopard print floor meets pink velvet sofa meets red wall which is bold and it's great and then one of the bookshelves just swiveled round to reveal a door which I've always wanted to have in my house
1: it's a secret door secret bookshelf Mm.
0: and I am having a cocktail which is like a female version of a negroni so it's with mezcal and it's really luscious yours has got a flower in it wow super pretty yeah and tasty and everything's great actually we haven't tried a deviled egg yet deviled eggs are quite a thing here
1: um shall i serve you one in
0: louisiana yes please a deviled egg for those who don't know is oh God, Sorry. she's just pushed my fork on the floor Sorry. and I'm wearing a beige jacket. That's cool, It's cool. Um, a, a deviled egg, is, is, do you think that's to do with voodoo then? Like the devil and voodoo, maybe? That's why it's a Louisiana thing,
1: Louisiana voodoo, I don't know. The deviled is actually in reference to the egg's piquant flavouring from paprika. In 18th century Britain, anything spicy was described as deviled associating hot seasoning with hell.
0: So a deviled egg is where you take out the yellow, mix it with mayonnaise and put it back in. It's very 80s, I think, 70s, 80s.
1: Ah, the deviled egg. When I think of it, I have nostalgia for a time I wasn't even in existence. A cold, hard-boiled egg that's been shelled, cut in half and stuffed with a filling of scooped-out egg yolk and other ingredients like mustard or mayo. It makes me think of the 70s, those vintage cookbooks with saturated scenes of foods that should never, ever go together. This New Orleans deviled egg, though, it's nothing short of amazing, and apparently it's a bit of a thing here in the South, which is why upmarket places like Bar Mary Lou are doing their own take on this classic.
0: How's the deviled egg? It's good, it's like an Asian take on it. So I think the egg's been pickled slightly in soy. And then it's got puffed rice, the texture, and spring onions, which is going to annoy me because I don't like to have that with me for the night in my mouth. But there we go. They're nailing the textures here. There's everything going on. Soft, crunchy, creamy, um, puffy.
1: By the late 1800s, deviled eggs started appearing in American cookbooks. You'd find platters of them at garden parties in sprawling plantations. And it wasn't uncommon for southern brides to receive platters with egg-shaped indentations as wedding gifts. One of the reasons given for why they might have become so popular here is because many people in the South had household chickens. Not hard to believe when you see the absolute abundance of land here as you drive past. Eggs were a staple for everyone, rich and poor. By the 1940s, the butter and egg yolk mix for the deviled filling was replaced with mayonnaise, especially when industrial mayo made it onto the market. Then refrigerators came onto the scene and the deviled egg became even more popular, making the perfect deviled egg a cool, savoury finger food. I think this is the the best start to any city that we've been to so far. If this
0: is a New Orleans welcome, then,
1: uh,
0: hello. I also really
1: like that we could walk to dinner, Yeah. so tonight you can have as many cocktails as you want, because you're not driving. There's a slightly darker side to the Devil egg's popularity in American food culture, as much as we love it. In the 1960s, when car travel became popular, the Devil egg featured as a go-to road trip snack for African-American families. They were usually forced to bring along a packed lunch for long car journeys. They called it the shoebox lunch. Apartheid restrictions meant that black Americans would not be served at drive throughs hence the packed lunch. The laws of the southern states meant that black motorists were often denied access to restaurants, hotels, even gas stations and restrooms. They They couldn't even stop to go to the toilet. That's why Victor Hugo published a guide every year from 1936 to 1966 and he called it the Negro Motorist Green Book. It was full of information detailing the places on the road that were willing to accommodate black patrons.
2: Next we go to the grocery started. store, even, even when we were growing up, of course when we were growing up it was segregated, but even so, you yeah. go to the grocery store. There's this huge grocery store all over the place called Schwegman's, which was unique.
1: This is Ann and Harriet, a cooking duo of grandmothers we've met up with at New Orleans School of Cooking for a deep dive into food culture in the city. As well as being teachers here at the culinary school, they're born and bred New Orleans. They're vibrant, funny, engaging, representative of the city itself. They're also qualified historical tour guides on New Orleans, which is exactly what we need. Here, they're weighing in on segregation because they lived through it
2: and you, you're in, in New Orleans and it's typical like this we still you go to the grocery store you see somebody. what do you do with that piece of meat we talk about food yeah. all the time in the grocery How store are you going to cook even people you don't even know you know we just
3: well, talk standing in line You I know, could talk to
2: that log but order. is
1: that with black people as well or was it segregated yes. like you couldn't you could go to the same grocery store oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah we all went to the it, same
2: well I mean that's, that's a little bit of an exaggeration because basically our neighbours were, were uh, segregated but then if you looked uptown I lived everybody, up- Uptown, yeah. you did. I, didn't, I grew up in the suburbs, where it's all white. But uptown, that's this way. The neighborhoods were kind of mixed mm-hmm. because you had the big plantation. I'm talking the old, old, old days. Yeah. And then you had when when slavery came to an end, then the, the former slaves started living in little houses in the neighborhood, and so it became a mixed area.
1: I can't really put my finger on it, but there's a real feeling of togetherness in New Orleans, more so than anywhere else we've visited. Our taxi drivers extol the city as soon as we get in the car. People actually stop and chat in the street. Music floats out from everywhere and seems to lift people's spirits. If I had to choose one word to encapsulate New Orleans, it would be celebration. Everyone seems to be up to party, and everyone we meet from New Orleans has good things to say about their home.
3: We celebrated Mardi Gras. Maybe five months after Katrina, where we had lost 80% of neighbourhoods. People couldn't come back.
1: This is Harriet. I like to call her the pocket rocket on account of her size and insane energy. She's describing the city's first big party after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. The hurricane decimated the city's transport networks and led to flooding of 80% of the city, Tens of thousands in New Orleans were left without shelter, food and basic necessities. Early Sunday morning, Katrina had built into a dangerous Category 5 hurricane barreling towards New Orleans.
4: On August 29th, Hurricane Katrina slammed into the Gulf Coast. The world watched as the levees surrounding New Orleans failed, flooding the city, leaving tens of thousands stranded and more than a thousand dead. There is absolutely nothing here. We advise people that this city has been destroyed. Five months
1: after the hurricane hit, the city celebrated Mardi Gras. And we
3: celebrated Mardi Gras. Parades, I mean, everything. And we had to do it because it brought the city back yeah. to, this is our tradition. Mm. If we had not celebrated Mardi Gras, I, it, I mean, we would have been doom and gloom.
1: If you never heard of it, Mardi Gras is a holiday celebrated in Louisiana in the weeks leading up to Shrove Tuesday, before the Catholic period of Lent. It's essentially a carnival
0: never been to Monogram, I would explain it as the ultimate joy compiled with chaos and excitement
1: and your feet hurt and you gotta get a drink. The entire city fills with decorated floats, costumed parade-goers, dancers and musicians. It's a time of revelry and absolute merriment before the supposedly subdued period of Lent. It arrived in New Orleans in the 1700s with the French who settled here. It's a tradition that's been going strong for over 300 years. So this taking to the streets to dance, it's embedded within the culture of the city. So it makes sense that when New Orleans most needed it post-Katrina, the city came together.
3: It it brought the city together. Black, white, Filipino, Hispanic, you
1: name it. it. We all came together. For so long now, cultures have mixed and melded together in New Orleans. French, Spanish, African-Americans, Germans, Jewish, Congolese, Haitian, Native American, Creole, Latino, Sicilians, Anglo-Americans. They're all in the origins of this city. The influence from all these cultures is reflected in the food here in New Orleans which is widely known as a capital for gastronomy. Exactly why we're here.
3: And this is roux making. It's the color you're looking for. Okay. This is a white roux and I only, I'm only gonna cook a white roux or blanc, B-L-A-N-C roux for three minutes. And Mm -hmm. that gets the pastiness out of the Mm -hmm. flour. So I'm just gonna do this for like three minutes. I don't want this to change color.
1: Harriet's showing us how to make a crab and corn bisque. A very thick soup that begins with the roux. The roux is a classic French base for cooking. It combines flour and a type of fat, usually butter, to form a paste. But this bisque is way more exciting than a traditional French soup. Harriet's adding a load of spices in there. Cayenne pepper, paprika, and cumin, they're all going in along with oregano. But the, var- the variations of what are- what's in here, so obviously the roux comes from the French. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. And the spices, where are they coming from? Like this spice? Now,
4: the
2: spices. Yes, the
3: spices from around the world.
1: Mm.
3: You know, if you wanted to see what the old recipes, you look at the old cookbooks and they have um, all of
1: them. So, this is essentially the world in a pot.
3: It truly is. That's how how New Orleans
1: cooking is, Mm.
3: Anastasia. It truly is because we were a port of entry. Everybody met at the table and contributed. Are you all going to Cajun
2: country?
1: Cajun country? We've heard this word banded around a bit by our second day in New Orleans. Obviously we've heard of Cajun spice, but what does Cajun actually mean?
2: Both of us have Cajun. There's a French peasants left Normandy and Brittany, France in the early 1600s mm. and moved to what is today Nova Scotia, Canada.
1: Anne's rattling off the history of the Cajun people of Louisiana so fast here, you can tell she's done it a million times in her role as a tour guide.
2: They needed to sell up there yeah. because the French owned it. So they moved to what is today Nova Scotia, but it was called Mm Lacadie. And lived there about 100 years undisturbed. I mean, totally undisturbed. And then England gained more territory and Canada's result of a war.
1: Okay. so the Cajuns were a group of people that were ousted from Acadia, now eastern Canada, in the 1700s. And that's when the British took territory in Canada from the French. So the French left Canada and they set up in Louisiana instead. Hence the very French influence on the city. There's Frenchmen Street, there's the French Quarter, there's obviously all this French influence in the food. Some people of Cajun descent, they still even speak a unique dialect of French here in Louisiana. So you are
2: both Cajun. We're gumbo. We're a gumbo of cultures. I'm I'm Cajun, French, I'm French, I'm German and Irish. Okay. And that's typical. You know, so I'm your
1: mum was what and your dad was what?
2: My mama was French and German. Yeah. My daddy was on his mama's side 100% uh Uh, Cajun, and his daddy was 100% Irish. Okay. So this is very typical of Louisiana. Mm -hmm.
1: To add to this mix, there's also another term that's been confusing us since we arrived, Creole.
2: You know what Creoles are?
3: Creole is a... It started off as a way of distinguishing you born here in the New Territory from your parents born in Europe or Africa. We're talking about 1700s. Yeah, Yeah. this is seventeen up until 1803. You were born here, you were Creoleo, and eventually Creole.
0: So there, so, there was, so there was a title that brought everyone together from the 1700s. Yeah,
3: you were Creole, whether you were, whether you were English, whether you were French, whether you were Spanish, or whether you were or Black, English, yeah, or whether yeah. whether you were mixed. Yeah. You know, uh, but you were born here, the first well. generation born in the new territory.
1: Creole is kind of an amazing, all-encompassing term for the people that were born and raised in the new territory – Whether you're of indigenous American, West African, Spanish, or French descent, or even a mix of these, if you were born here in this territory, you're Creole. You're a gumbo of ethnicities, as Anne pots it. It kind of adds to my love of New Orleans that people, regardless of their origins, they're bound together by the very fact that they're from here. Obviously, this mixing of cultures gave birth to some incredible dishes. There's jambalaya, This thick, meat-heavy paella takes its influence from French, West African and Spanish cooking. It's considered Creole and Cajun, so I can see how this can get confusing. Gumbo, another iconic New Orleans dish, is a stew made rich with a French-inspired roux and then thickened with chicken, sausage or seafood and spiced with Cajun spice. Featuring plenty of paprika, cayenne pepper, garlic and oregano. Another dish here in New Orleans is the dessert, Bananas Foster, which Anne's decided to demonstrate for us with an impressive historical account of the dessert's origins.
2: So quite often, ships would come up the river and somehow get stuck for one reason or another and couldn't get to port. Nobody wants to buy overripe bananas, Mm -hmm. so it was a serious issue.
1: New Orleans is a port city. It's 110 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, and it was the banana port for the Caribbean, as puts it. Sometimes, enormous ships would get stuck as they came up the river and couldn't get to the port, which was pretty bad news for a huge shipment of bananas coming in from the Caribbean.
2: And uh, there was a man named uh, Richard Foster. And um, he was good friends with a man named Owen Brennan, who owned a very famous restaurant, apparently still does, called Brennan's. And... um, he said uh, he must have gotten a shipment of overripe bananas he said you know you got to do some of these bananas you got a good chef challenge him for the recipe using these overripe bananas mm. and the, and the chef was a french chef paul blanche blanchet blanchet blanche. which was it Aaron? paul blanche. blanche.
1: essentially bananas foster came about because of a pile of bananas that might otherwise have gone to waste anne also explains that the area was abundant in sugar cane so it made sense to team the banana up with a load of sugar The result is a caramelized banana dish, flambé dramatically in banana liqueur, rum, and topped with a generous ball of vanilla ice cream.
2: When you go to the restaurants, some of the restaurants will slice the bananas lengthwise, and you don't have to use overripe bananas, but you cannot absolutely, positively, cannot use green bananas. Roger that. All right, and then this is rum. You can use gold rum, or I call it gold, but this is white rum, doesn't matter. So we've got
1: brown and
2: white rum. This is essential to the presentation. Okay. Voodoo powder.
1: Voodoo powder? Cinnamon? I love this. Anne and Harriet like to call cinnamon voodoo powder. As an aside, New Orleans is a city with loads of voodoo heritage. You can even still buy Grigri dolls. Those little, they're like little voodoo dolls. You can buy those in stores around the city along with potions and talismans. Voodoo first came to Louisiana with enslaved West Africans and was bolstered in 1791 when a load of these enslaved people in Haiti revolted. They moved to Louisiana as free people and they practiced voodoo, which essentially is a religion based on nature, spirits, ancestors, mysticism and magic. It's not a god that interferes in daily lives in voodoo, but spirits. And by practicing voodoo, its followers believe that they can connect to these spirits. And they do that through rituals, dancing, and singing. So perhaps that's why the city feels so celebratory. One of its religions is founded on a belief that you can dance and sing your way to a better life.
2: Yeah, get ready. All right, how are you going to do the voodoo powder?
1: I'll turn down the lights. You'll get a better idea. Yeah. Yes. All right. You
2: don't put your rum in? I'm going to do it now. But it's got to come to a boil,
1: OK? Ooh. Things now start to get a bit chaotic in the kitchen. All
2: right, no, it's got to come to a
1: boil. It's bubbling away. Ooh, Bobby, you smell wait, that? Tell me when
0: you're going
2: to go. No, not yet. I'm waiting for that boil. OK. Come on.
1: Can't wait too long.
0: <laughs> go, Harriet. <laughs> voodoo powder, voodoo
4: powder.
1: Add the voodoo. OK, all hell is breaking loose. In a good way. We've poured rum over the banana, sugar and butter mixture and Anne's pan has just gone up in flames. I pinch it.
3: I pinch it, all right?
1: Pinch
2: it? I mean, I pinch it with my
1: hands. Harriet has a bowl of cinnamon she's trying to pour into the flames at once and Anne's trying to throw little pinches in and every time the cinnamon powder catches a flame it ignites and sends out dramatic little sparks like mini fireworks. It's chaos and I'm loving it. You've got the
2: thing in front of you, oh God. That's what mine's like. All right, that's enough cinnamon. And that's how you make it. And um, we would serve this to our children, like this. Yeah. Let me get the ice cream.
3: And get a. This is entirely. Well, I couldn't find the
2: small one, Harry. And I had a big. big uh, anything's better than a bowl, Anne. <laughs>
3: look! 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 Here it is. This is what you need. You need a little one quarter, oh. and it just goes right in. I can't get over this.
1: I love the way Anne and Harriet bicker in the kitchen. It's hilarious because I can tell they're actually just, they're just full of love for each other, really. Just look at it.
2: What's wrong with this? That way you can go boom, boom. I don't do it like that, Harriet. i put it in a little bowl and i pinch it. Well, honey, are you wrong?
1: As chaotic and mental as this all sounds, this dish is incredible. Hot, caramelly, molten banana sinks into a bowl of cool, sweet ice cream. It's a show-stopping dessert to whip out for any dinner party or celebration. And it's fairly quick and simple to do. Just don't forget the voodoo powder. If you're ever in New Orleans, I really do advise that you go and visit Anne and Harriet at the New Orleans School of Cooking. They'll give you an amazing cooking demonstration. And they're just the most amazing intro to the city. (laughs) Out in the street in the French Quarter, we pass beautiful old colonial-style buildings. Musicians are out en masse down Frenchman Street, and we can't help but let the night carry us away. We're on such a high from our time with Anne and Harriet, giddy on the energy of the city and its people. One guy with a vintage typewriter even stops us in the street and writes a poem for us based on the Grand Dishes Granny cookbook we're working on.
4: A second brush with book learning met on the other side of where they began. Like dessert first, skipped ahead to their futures to gather intelligence. Sharp like that, hungry, growing kids. Tall sprouts of action, speaking ruby red in matching jewelry. The pride of each Sunday technique. The seconds of childhood, Second doting, second helping, spun round, old and new, with secret recipe and sound timing. A doubling of the table seats, trusted for the roads and their respite. Four sets of eyes share the smirk and the plan and the plans end in our cosy unknown and whatever its home-cooked bond.
1: So, of course... We get carried away. We get drunk as well as giddy and we end up eating chicken tenders with a guy called Dan at three in the morning. Okay, so we are at Willie's on Frenchman Street yes. and we're with Dan right now and he's just been delivered some what have you been
4: delivered? It's all about the tenders. Can I see them? You may see them.
1: Oh my god Oh my god!
4: Look at that that godly goodness of food. You, you only got three for two people? Wait, can I all 10 out? What's that? What's that? You got three for two people? Yeah. I got five for one person.
1: <laughs> now, I don't know if it's the booze, but these breadcrumb-coated chicken strips of goodness or badness, depending on your stance on fast food, they're delicious. So thanks, Dan, if you're out there, for bringing them to our awareness. The next day is Sunday, and we're on a mission to cure the hangover. We're booked in for an epic three-course brunch at a place called Commander's Palace, and nothing and I really mean nothing, can prepare us for the sheer joy of this place.
0: It's a complete sensory onslaught in here. There are balloons on every table for no reason apart from that they think they're fun, which is amazing. It's, it's Saturday. Oh, that's why the balloons are here. Just because of the weekend, brilliant. I'm gonna have um, balloons every Saturday from now on.
1: Not very eco though, is it? Sorry to be boring.
0: Maybe I'll blow up something um, (laughs) else.
1: Do I want to know where this is going? No. Commander's Palace is one of the USA's oldest restaurants, and it's the oldest-running restaurant in New Orleans.
0: The restaurant's 125 years old, and in the last 26 years that I've been around it, every single season, every single day, we constantly try to get better.
1: It happens to be owned by the Brenham family. If you remember from our cook-off with Anne and Harriet... The Brennans are the ones, supposedly, credited for being part of the Bananas' foster origin story here in the city. It's a grand old mansion painted sky blue, and it's been around since the 1850s when it used to be a brothel for the wealthy Americans that built houses in the area. All around Commander's Palace, the buildings are absolutely enormous. They're dramatic and imposing structures with impressive column detailing and perfectly manicured gardens. This district of New Orleans was built by Americans who were moving into the city in the 1800s. They built everything super-sized because they wanted to show off their status to their Cajun and Creole neighbours. So this is a bit of an American two fingers up at the French Quarter. Absolutely, that's what this is. And it makes so much sense because all of the houses around Commander's Palace, just in this, it's called the Garden District, they're enormous and it just sort of fits with that whole Americans do it bigger. So even... 150 years ago, 160 years ago, 70, 170 years ago, whatever, uh, the Americans were already going bigger and better on everything. They were supersizing their houses. We've walked through three packed rooms already to get to our dining room. It's enormous and full of people enjoying delicious looking things. It almost feels like we're in a garden, doesn't it? We've got... Um, Especially with the white, like, trellising on yeah. the walls. There's white trellising on the walls. There's uh, an incredible sort of floral and fauna print carpet. And then even on our plates, we've got... Do you say that's a banana leaf? Banana leaf with Yeah. Pink yeah. Super we're in a room overlooking the garden, also packed with diners, and there are palm prints everywhere. Balloons on every table, and a three-piece jazz band playing to grinning diners already tucking into their three-course brunches.
0: Well, I'll just let you know, a couple of things as you begin to look. It is a three-course package at brunch. We just choose a starter and I choose a dessert.
1: This is our server, Samantha, talking us through the menu, which is extensive, to say the very least.
0: The gumbo today will be a redfish and shrimp. Soup de jour is a sweet potato and roasted chicken. If you're a fan of sweet and spicy though, down to your bottom left, Mr Potasso hennequin is our signature appetizer my absolute favorite. For our entrees today, the pecan roasted fish. The-
1: I can barely take in what Samantha's saying because there's just so many options. She can't really pause for a breath. There's Commander's Creole Gumbo, pecan crusted fish, duck confit with quail's egg, something called cochon lay Eggs Benedict. Crayole bread pudding souffle and something else that's really caught our attention.
0: I'm gonna ask if we can
1: have a thimble of turtle soup. A thimble? Yes. Well change that we to an I and that's fine. You did just hear correctly. Turtle soup is on the menu and Iska feels compelled to order it. Um, Turtle soup makes me think of Alice in Wonderland. Why is that? Why is turtle soup coming to my mind when I think of Alice in Wonderland? It's in the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, isn't it? Is it? They eat turtle soup, do they? All turtles. It does feel a bit Mad Hatter-esque here at Commander's Palace. Turtle soup has been an iconic dish from New Orleans for over 300 years. The French settlers that moved to the city at the time ate pretty much anything that lived in the swamps, which meant the fresh seafood like shrimp, as well as bigger animals like alligator and turtle. I'm not particularly keen. Crispy dog leg gumby. We can't have that again. Sweet fingerling potatoes, we like those do Oh, though, we don't love fingerling potatoes. Yeah.
0: fingerling
1: a <laughs> I like the sound of a commander's salad. Yeah, I know. Is that boring? Yeah. Maybe we should have a gumbo. I touched on this earlier, but gumbo is another iconic dish from New Orleans. Its heritage is French and West African. Even the etymology of the word gumbo has its roots in the Niger-Congo languages spoken by the enslaved people. The word for okra, an ingredient in gumbo, was kingombo. It's usually dark in colour and very thick. A rich stew that combines meat and seafood in one, and is sometimes thickened with either a French-inspired roux or okra.
0: Can I just say that something happened to me in this restaurant that's never happened to me before. They came over and they saw that I was wearing all black, so they changed my napkin from a white one to a black one. <laughs> that's extraordinary yeah. service.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's excellent. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Look at the dessert. Yeah, that's the souffle. My goodness, they've got a bread pudding souffle that's like a big... Fluffy, cream cloud coming out of the souffle pot. This bread pudding souffle has also made Commander's Palace famous. It's so light and fluffy. Not what you'd expect of a bread pudding. It's it's not dense at all, and it's French-inspired, but bigger and better in true American style. The most important thing though is that there is a jazz band, you can probably hear them in the background, and they just did this thing called a line where they gave us serviettes. Serviettes? Yeah. And we walked around the room following the jazz band, sort of pumping our hands in the air with our serviettes. Like a classy conga. Yeah. And without the legs. That was just really fun, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: And then they came over and asked if we had any requests. And Iska
1: chose the most difficult song that she could have thought of that it took them a moment to really pull together. And they nailed it. She requested I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. And here they're trying to get it right for us. Oh, it. we you not have requested an easier one? No, 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 we know that one. This place is like nowhere I've ever been before. People seem to be here to celebrate. There are a ton of birthdays going on and everyone's incredibly jolly. There's even a Bananas Foster demonstration happening at a table nearby. That's a banana's foster, isn't it? Yeah. We've seen that. We did that yesterday. I'm looking. So a lady has
0: wheeled over a trolley with an induction hob on it and a pan and a banana to her right, and something's about to happen.
1: All eyes are in the direction of the banana's foster. It's so theatrical. Children are standing on chairs. Even the music has stopped for the foster. Stuff's happening now.
0: Now she's put the... bin. No, I think now she's put the booze in. Oh, it's not setting alight. Uh-oh, malfunction, malfunction. It's gone wrong. Here we go. And now she's going to cinnamon it. whoa. So she's thrown some cinnamon in and it makes it spark like fireworks.
1: She pulls it off, of course. And in the meantime, so much has landed in front of us. Three servers come over at once and place a salad, the gumbo and the turtle soup before us in perfect synchronicity. I can see Iska really wants to like the turtle soup, but...
0: OK, I'm going to try the turtle soup. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> not
1: funny. What does turtle taste like? No, She just put a splash of sherry in it. to, to taste tastes of sherry? Yeah. Yeah, they probably try and put sherry in it to sort of disguise the turtle taste. It doesn't taste of turtle. Well, you don't know what turtle tastes like. You've never it's had like, it.
0: it tastes like it's got very, very fine minced beef in it.
1: Yeah. We're not sold on the turtle. But once we're done with this course, we're on to dessert. And I have to say, we're pretty into it. And there are three desserts on the table. We've just received a triple dessert of sweet wine sorbet, an enormous, towering, knickerbocker glory-style ice cream sundae. And my favourite, a -a light-as-a-cloud bread-pudding souffle that's spiked with rum. Like the gumbo and turtle soup, Bread pudding souffle is famous here at Commander's Palace, and it's by far my favourite option on the menu. It also really says something about the type of cooks that people from New Orleans were. Like a lot of southern cooking, this dessert came about because of the thrifty Cajun and Creole cooks' desire to avoid waste. It was a way of putting days-old dry bread to good use, according to an 1885 book, La Cuisine Creole, by Junior Lafcadio Hearn. He said, economy and simplicity govern la cuisine creole. The classic recipe features days-old bread, milk, eggs, sugar, and sometimes fruit like raisins, and a dash of alcohol like brandy or rum. The one at Commander's Palace has been transformed into a towering souffle that's so satisfying to dive into with a spoon. The jazz band started again, just in time for our brunch dessert. Sunday and jazz. (laughs) i <laughs> just realised I'm sort of heaving over the top of my jeans. How that happened? They felt fine America. when I got in it's here. days in America. They felt fine when I got in here, honestly. I actually don't feel bad. I'm looking at myself in the mirror every day thinking, God, girl, you look good. <laughs> <laughs> I've completely know. fallen for New Orleans and I really don't care that my jeans barely fit me anymore. The food in this city will do that to you. Next up, we're diving deeper into the gumbo of cultures in Louisiana, tasting our first po' boy and driving through swampland for a good old-fashioned cochon de lait. Want to know what that means? You'll have to listen to the next episode. If you like this episode of Food Trippin', please do hit subscribe so you can get every new episode as it lands. Thanking everyone that made us fall in love with this city that's TTM World and the New Orleans School of Cooking. Thanks also to my fellow producer and editor, Farinisa Campana, and road trip buddy, Iska Lupton. This episode was reported and hosted by me, Anastasia Miari. Music from this episode came from Mixkit and the Free Music Archive. Food Trippin' is a More Corners podcast made with Ink Studios.